Welcome everyone to the Francis Farmer Show. Glad you could join us this time for our Seijun Suzuki retrospective show, tying in with the retrospective that is in Seattle uh, as we speak, uh, playing at a couple of venues here, uh, the Grand Illusion and the Northwest Film Forum. Uh, we're actually going to talk about a film that already played as part of that series, uh, 1963's Youth of the Beast, uh, and tying it in with that, uh, we're doing another Yakuza film, this one uh, from 30 years later, uh, Sonatine from uh, Takashi Kitano. So uh, a lot of, lot of guns, a lot of bullets, a lot of, uh, you know, stylish, grim faces. Stylish nihilism. Stylish nihilism. That, that's, hey, there you go. That's our new slogan. <laughs> now that we've changed shows, we used to have the old slogan, reasonably competent. Now, stylish nihilism. Uh, Reasonably competent wasn't a slogan so much. It was a mission statement. <laughs> well, I, I implore people now to go on to iTunes and, and change it to stylish nihilism. Uh, our legion, our street team. Do they still have street teams? Remember street teams? I don't know what that is. Street teams were where, you know, uh, like media conglomerates would, you know, get people to go like through the inner city and put up, you know, uh, handbills for, you know, corporate crap, uh, but make it look like it's, you know, uh, embraced by the community. I, I don't know. I, I've never been to the inner city. <laughs> I, I mean, the city I grew up in had no inner. Yeah, that's true. You, well, you live a deprived life, Sean. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we're also going to talk about, uh, Suzuki in general, kind of, uh, when and pick our, uh, you know, uh, essentially Yakuza films. Yeah. So it, it's it, all coming together. It's a it's a very uh, Yakuza centric episode. Yeah. Um, um, yeah. Yes. E even though we don't probably know how to actually say the word correctly, so <laughs> hasn't stopped us for you know ninety episodes. Yeah. What are you gonna do? <laughs> what are you gonna do? What are you gonna do? Uh, yeah, so I guess without further ado, let's I think just dive right into this with a clip from uh, Youth of the Beast. So that was a clip from Youth of the Beast uh, from 1963, the plot of which uh, it starts out with uh, the police discovering uh, two dead bodies 
uh, one is a turns out to be a cop detective uh, and with a call girl. And uh, it's ruled as a double suicide, uh, you know, a Romeo and Juliet kind of passion play there. But uh, but our good friend uh, Joe Shishido, who uh, is is the star of this film, uh, and if you've ever if you've ever seen him, you'll know he's the dude with the cheeks, uh, um, <laughs> which I think we'll talk about uh, in depth here. But uh, he much, don't, he doesn't much like his cheeks in depth. That's right. Uh, he uh, he thinks it's kind of fishy, uh, but we don't really know who he is, what's going on with him. But he in, basically he infiltrates um, a couple of gangs and kind of pits them against each other in kind of a Yojimbo style. You know, he he's uh, he's given tips to to one or the other, and he, while trying to uncover who actually killed this detective guy who he uh, he has a past with. Um, that's pretty succinct, huh? That was pretty good. Yeah, that's I, that's impressive. I, I think I did a good job on that one. Sure, I gotta pat myself on the back there for that. Yeah, it uh, gets uh, <laughs> it gets you know complications ensue. Complications ensue, and you know, really, I mean, we'll talk about Suzuki at length, I think, but um, but it's a Suzuki film, which means that it's uh, which you know, you know it's ve- what people don't know what that means. I know. I'm about to tell. To I'm about to tell people what that to means. Tell them. <laughs> I was about to, but I remember that you posted on Letterboxd and you were saying we couldn't use certain words, and I was going to try and pivot yeah. around the the words that would be, uh, right. you know, yeah. frequently used. But you know what? Screw it. It's stylized. Yeah. That was that one of your words? It wasn't, but oh, wasn't okay. It, good. It's in the spirit of what I was going after. <laughs> uh, it okay. Dude is flashy. Mm. I think I'm going to come out and say that uh, Suzuki's style is very flashy. Um, the the movie starts in black and white uh, with with the uncovering of these bodies, uh, and then we and then it cuts to some really groovy '60s music, uh, and it's boom, vibrant colors right at you. Um, and actually, I really like the credit sequence, which is black and white but with green lettering. I think that's really cool too. Um, and then you get the the one red flower. Right, in, like yes. Yeah. Um, so anyway, he's he's got this kind of yeah. It's a very stylish look, and you know it's the '60s, and so there's uh, the some of the sets are also you know kind of hip and happening. You know, there's the the best set. Actually, there are two sets that I really like in this. First one is in the nightclub where uh, Joe is you know being entertained by like six different women, and uh, there's a you know one way mirror. Where leading to this, you know, uh, mob boss's kind of office where he can see everything, all the action, but it's soundproof and stuff. And so you, you get this woman dancing naked through the glass. Uh, you know, it was, she's got pasties on and she's got feathers and stuff. Um, but you can't, you don't hear the music. You just see her dancing in the background while, you know, there's like a shootout in this, this office. Uh, that's she, cool. She, she's got feathers. She's got feathers, right? She comes. She's got these big purple yeah, feathers. Yeah, no, that's great. That's... Gypsy Rose Lee, you know. She's I mean? got feathers. She's got feathers. There's a slogan. <laughs> uh, and then there's another. I think the best uh, set is it's it, it, it's in a movie theater or something where the, there's a screen, uh, it as as a wall in in this kind of 
dark CD office room or whatever, but there's constantly moving images. A movie's being projected onto it once again with no sound. Yeah. Um, and that's I want to I want to build that in my house. <laughs> I want to have a room that's just like a movie constantly playing, uh, you know, on a giant wall. But anyway, uh, so yeah, it's stylized. He's going in between these two uh, these two gangs. Um, you know, the, I gotta say the gangs are kind of stupid because they suspect. You know, they they don't trust them for pretty much the whole movie. Uh, why do they keep him around? Because he's like really good at being violent. <laughs> yeah, and, and and he's and he seems kind of crazy. And what you need when you are a, a yakuza boss is crazy violent dudes around. That's right, willing to risk anything. Yeah, um, yeah. and he and he shows his metal. You know, he's uh, you know he puts himself in harm's way time and again. He you know he extorts people and you know gets guns in his face and stuff and always comes out the coolest customer uh in the room but uh but at the same time you know it's pretty obvious that he's you know working to other ends there but um so anyway yeah this i i feel like we're going to talk about the kind of genre on the whole but this feels like despite the stylish ways of Suzuki or whatever. Uh, this feels in a way like it could be considered like a quintessential uh, Yakuza film. Do you, do you concur? Uh, no. Not yeah? really. Not really. Um, it, it seems to me like you could, you could transplant everything about this story to like late 1940s Los Angeles and you wouldn't lose anything. Uh, I don't. I don't think. To me, like the difference between a yakuza film and just like a film noir is something about the the ideology of of the gangsters. In the same way, like a mafia movie is different from a, a regular, like Jimmy Cagney gangster film. You know, mm-hmm. uh, or, or the, a triad film is different from a yakuza film. Like they're oh, yeah, they, triad they, films are yeah totally yeah these these are organized crime entities that have a a unique philosophy and relationship to Japanese society and politics and and culture and uh, the movies you're not seeing that here yeah the movies have to negotiate with that in some way this just seems to me like a film noir like this could be Dashiell Hammett like it's you said uh, Yojimbo and it's and Yojimbo, of course, is inspired by Red Harvest, right. and and this could be that, just as well. the The hero uh, is a hard boiled noir hero. He's not a he's not a criminal. He's not an anti hero in the way they are. He's like a disgraced former cop, so he's still a good guy. He's not really of the yakuza world. Yeah, I guess I can see that. I mean, but. And and maybe this is speaking to my ignorance of the genre because you know I I, I guess the majority of the ones that I've seen have been directed by uh, Seijun Suzuki, <laughs> uh, and also starring Joe Shido, uh, who will come up uh, later in the program uh, in this very discussion. But um, but I don't know. It this feels this feels Japanese to me. Like the 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 way. I mean, I, don't know. I, I, I mean, feel like... let me let me clarify. Like 
everything that Suzuki does with this seems Japanese. Like I, I right. You know, very very few cultures in the world would create somebody like Seijin Suzuki, and right. and have the kind of manipulations to the crime melodrama format that he uh, envisions and thinks of. Uh, but plot wise, yeah. But just just on like the basics of of, of plot wise, like is this is this a, a crime melodrama or is it a yakuza film specifically? Uh, and I am no, by no means an expert on yakuza films, but but when I think of the the genre, that's what would distinguish it from other crime melodramas in my mind. Right. Okay. No, that's fair. That's fair. Yeah. But now you know these cheeks go a long way, though. <laughs> it's like the different <laughs> the difference between like Heat and Goodfellas. Like they're both crime melodramas. They're both they're both really good. They're both about like American men and criminals and doing like pulling off heists even. But one is about the philosophy of a particular kind of criminal life, and the other is not about that. It's about other things. I think I think okay. Youth of the Beast is about those other things. Yeah, I get that. I can see that. You convinced me. Okay. Good. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, but, I would still call it a Yakuza film, though. Yeah, I mean it. It prominently features a number of characters who are identified as Yakuza. <laughs> so if you want to use that as well, your but definition. also, but also <laughs> even like even. I don't know. Even some of the what what uh, what what makes it a yakuza film for you? Other than that, well, a couple of things. Um, some of the um, it seems like some of the relationships uh, and the way that these uh, gangsters play around with each other and and the so I, I think that. Uh, you see some of the 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 way the rules of this particular mob uh, mob society I think are, are laid out a little bit in this um, uh, and the kind of formalities like you um, jo you're right Joe Shishido's character is kind of a man apart from that world and and that's why he doesn't sit well in that world and 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 that's why when I'm watching and I'm like why don't these guys realize that he's you know clearly got ulterior motives than just like you know wanting to be a gangster in their gang or whatever but but the um the gangsters themselves i feel like do kind of follow from what i've seen it like a yakuza coder they have there there seem to be rules that they're they're living by that he is uh kind of clearly you know ignoring um so i don't know i i feel like that that's an aspect of this but yeah it's definitely not the the main crux of the film yeah, it's, and you know, it, I, I think part of it is just I, ha I had trouble following kind of just the hierarchy of the organization because there are so there seems like so many people and their relationships are so complicated. Which is, you know, one one of I think the the really interesting things about the film is I really found the plot almost incomprehensible. But you know what? I don't think it's the I don't think it's because I think it's because of the way it's filmed. I think it's Suzuki that causes that problem. And this is actually, and I actually kind of, I, I didn't love this movie. And I think part of it is because of that. And, and 
I maybe maybe you're feeling differently about it, but I the the way this thing is edited, and this has happened in other Suzuki films, there's this kind of blunt editing that goes on with this, where it's just like, you know, a scene just abruptly ends and cuts to another thing, and there there's not a it it's kind of you know it stutters and stops and is a little disjointed, which was which made it difficult for me to follow what was going on. Was did you is that what you're referring to, or is it something different, or is it just too convoluted? Uh, yeah, I actually like that. I like the the kind of abrupt transitions and just kind of throwing you in and out of scenes. Like I get, I guess you know this. This is kind of my theory with with Suzuki, at least for the ones that I've seen. And we'll talk about this later. But I get I get the feeling that he's just kind of bored with these movies and just wants to make them as weird as possible. And part of the way of doing that is is cutting out. Uh, more than just unnecessary exposition, cutting out just like a little bit more. So like some of the the stuff that we're used to getting, the little transitions, right. the the scenes in between, the the repetitions of what the plot is going to be about. Uh, he 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 cuts those out just to kind of keep us on our toes, and I I enjoy that. <laughs> like I like I like being perplexed at a movie. Yeah, I'm fine with it for some reason. Yeah, I, I get it. I like it in the abstract, but for some reason, playing out in this and I, in some other Suzuki stuff too, I just, um, I don't know. It, it's a little too jarring for me at times. But um, yeah. So so but, I mean, so if, you're... It, if it if it was if it was just that and not like in combination with all of these other kind of crazy things that uh, that he does with these movies, I don't know if I would like it as much. Right. But when when you have stuff like that, and then you have scenes like. Uh, where uh, one of the the gangsters is whipping one of his uh, uh, call girls, and she like crawls out the door, and it's like a a tumbleweed filled desert outside, just inexplicably. When every other set that we've seen is in the middle of the city, uh, that kind of just complete break with uh, reality is something I've really really find exciting in his films. yeah i i liked i like that stuff and like i said the the sets are really cool and yeah there's definitely um a lot of his audacious you know adventurous stuff which you know led to his kind of uh you know commercial failings and you know <laughs> stuff yeah uh, I, I i think those are really cool too but but some of it works and some of it doesn't i i haven't i have never really been able to give myself completely over to a suzuki film despite how much I respect his his you know uh, accomplishments and you know uh, at least attempts at these kind of weird things. So, so so you find what do you find convoluted about it? Then you just it's just there's too many characters. There's like too much going on. There's, yeah, there's just there's too much plot. Like it, it it makes sense in the beginning where he's like he's he's uh, he was friends with this cop that has died and he's trying to find out the truth about his death and he thinks the the yakuza did it and he's trying to figure out which of them was responsible and get them to destroy themselves and that's fine and then you add like this whole uh, another layer of plot onto it where within one of the yakuza organizations there is a mysterious woman who runs all of the prostitution business that nobody has ever met and nobody knows who she is and that maybe she was the one who killed the cop and how she fits in to the rest of the criminal organization and also the guy with the razor blade where he fits in also he's like the brother of the boss of the group i'm not really sure 
Right. Uh, yes. Yeah. It's just all. And then, of, and all then of he his, has a. He has a. He has the uh, the the tick of whenever someone calls his mom a whore, he slices their faces open with razor blades. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The the tick. I love that. <laughs> the, the the little you know minor the little, character you know, flaw. Twitch that he's got. Yeah. That, yeah. You, know. the... <laughs> you call my mom a whore, and then bah! Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, it's just I it's just piling piling character and complication upon complication until until you're it it uh, it becomes less about the plot and more about just kind of this sense of an entire universe where everyone is horrible and and life has no meaning. Which, as the film gets to its conclusion, and we actually we find out who like the the sixth mistress is uh becomes the the whole point of the movie it's like the snowballing nihilism that is a lot of fun yeah i really like that yeah uh yeah i i actually yeah the final uh 10 15 minutes of this i think redeemed it in my eyes because i yeah i like I said, maybe because it was the editing or what, but yeah, I, the the middle portion of it, I was like, yeah, you know, some parts are not so, you know, I was kind of flagging a little bit, but yeah, the end where those pieces come together, I think, is really cool. Yeah, and it it, it reminded me, you know, I call I call it a film noir. It reminded me a lot of like Kiss Me Deadly, or uh, like the really late kind of brutal uh, films noir. Uh, where yeah. where the genre really just kind of goes off the deep end and starts to eat itself and and this to me is that kind of film and and uh yeah i i liked it a lot i really did i i i want i i kind of was kicking myself for not having gone to see it at the uh at the film forum when it played last week yeah are you gonna try and make it out to any of the others uh i'm i might <laughs> i might we'll we'll, we'll see yeah uh, right. well, yeah, I mean, we're gonna we're gonna talk more about about Suzuki and, and Yakuza films. So I don't I don't know if we want to get too general in this discussion. Do you have Do you have any, anything more specifically about Youth of the Beast you want to mention? Not really. Yeah. <laughs> and that's why I'm. That's why I am like, it's fine. It's a good movie. I enjoyed it. I had a good time. But like, I don't know. There's not like. Um, Besides that nihilism that you're talking about, and that kind of—I don't know if it's really a twist ending, but the the ending where it all comes together, yeah, I, I just don't think that there's—I um, don't know—I don't think there's too much to this movie. Um, but we can talk about the cheeks. We can talk about Joe Shido's cheeks. You know, he had tr- like cheek implants, right? I did not know that. I think that's true. Wait, really? let me, yeah, let me let me let me confirm. Hang on. Uh, come on! I know he. I, I'm pretty sure he got cheek implants. Yeah, D- displeased with his middling success in melodramas and blandly handsome features, Shishido underwent cheek augmentation surgery in 1957, increasing their size. <laughs> I I don't know what to say to that. Right. Right? Isn't that the weirdest thing you've ever it's, heard? It seems like something a character in a Seijun Suzuki film would do. <laughs> it's so fucking strange, man. I've never heard of anybody having cheek augmentation surgery. That, uh, well, it, 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 it works for him. 
Yeah, you know, it's the, it was the style at the time. So, uh, so on that note, think about that while we take a quick break here. So that was some of uh, the music that you, you uh, created, Mike. What was it called? That one's called Cupcake Mountain, Sean. Yeah, why did you call it that, Mike? Because I needed to come up with a name to save the file, Sean. Interesting. <laughs> I was probably, you know, you, you want to see the, the creative process here? I sure. probably uh, had just eaten a cupcake. Mm. <laughs> and then I was, or I was thinking about eating a cupcake. One or the other, and then I was like, I need to name this song, and so there, then I did. So there you go. <laughs> I, I, I can dig it. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, like like we said, there is a a Seijin Suzuki retrospective in Seattle right now. It's been touring around the country for the last uh, year or so, I think. As as most of things these things go, we're at the tail end of of the tour, so. Um, I don't know. It, it's it's very cool. I think there's eleven films total playing between between the Grand Illusion and the Film Forum. Uh, a lot of them on thirty five millimeter. I'm not sure if all of them are. Uh, yeah, the notice on uh, the, the Grand Illusion's website says many of them on thirty five. So yeah, yeah, something something's either on sixteen or you know DCP or something. But uh, yeah, yeah, and the, they're almost all uh, films from the nineteen sixties. Which is kind of his most uh, productive and, and famous uh, period, uh, and then it, they all, but they also have uh, the the Taisho trilogy, which uh, the story behind that is after Branded to Kill came out in what 1967 or 68, uh, the Nikatsu Studio where Suzuki had been working for the last 15 years or so. Uh, making like 40 movies for them. Uh, they terminated his contract because he had just gotten too weird. Yeah, he's kind of crazy. Uh, and he was effectively blacklisted from the Japanese studio system for, for a decade. And then in, in 1980, he came back with an independent production that won an award at like Venice or Berlin or something. And he... he followed it up and he continued to make movies for the next 20 years or so uh not all that often but some of them were uh were successful uh, i know uh pistol opera from 2001 i think has a lot of fans and i'm i'm a big fan of his last movie which is called princess raccoon and stars jeng ziyi and is unmusical and it's amazing yeah, I, I need to see that one. I, you've been talking about that one since it came out, what, 10 years ago? Yeah, and it's it's not part of the retrospective, unfortunately. But uh, yeah, I, I Suzuki is, is somebody who I've really liked every movie that I've seen, but I haven't seen all that many movies. Uh, that's funny, because I, 
I haven't seen that many either. Um, and I, once again, it goes back to what I was just saying with the, you know, the previous discussion. I respect them, and I, and I'd say I like them, but I've never like totally embraced a film of his. Um, some I like more than others. Um, you know, Youth of the Beast kind of fell in the middle. I want to see some of his um, earlier stuff too, like. Um, Passport to Darkness. Passport to Darkness, uh, Underworld Beauty, stuff like that. I'd, I'd like to see those um, as well. Um, but I've seen, I don't know, maybe a hand. I've seen a handful, and um, I've seen Fighting Elegy, which I was kind of lukewarm on, uh, which is part of the retrospective. Uh, that one's playing, uh, I think, this weekend. Yeah, yeah think, it plays this Sunday. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then I Brandon to Kill, um, but. Another thing is that I saw most of those a long time ago, so I may have a different opinion of them now. Like, I, I think I saw them um, early on in my kind of film uh, obsession, you know, so I, I may be a little more receptive to them now that uh, I'm more open to wackiness. Yeah. Fighting <laughs> Elegy isn't that wacky, though. That, that one's not, uh, but like uh, something like Branded to Kill or Tokyo Drifter or something like that. Yeah. The, the weird thing is, I think I think we've each seen like four or five of his movies, and I don't know that any of them are the same ones other than Youth <laughs> of the Beast. Because I, I, I haven't seen Branded to Kill or, or Fighting Elegy or uh, I haven't seen any of the prostitute movies, but I've seen Princess Raccoon and Tokyo Drifter and Tattooed Life. Yeah. And, so uh, we're. <laughs> yeah. Tokyo well, Drifter. He... Tokyo Drifter was the first one I saw, and I yeah, I'd never seen anything like it, and it was, it kind of blew my mind, and I was like afraid to follow it up with other ones because. Uh, you yeah, didn't want to. You don't want to have a completely blown mind. Well, yeah. I did. I don't want. I didn't want to like. I didn't. I didn't want it to lose its specialness. Yeah. Because if it turns out like he made like 15 movies that end in like uh, abstracts on or abstract sets designed by Piet Mondrian or something, then it would kind of like dull the impact of that one just insane scene, you know? Right. Yeah. Uh, but, I uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I saw a tattooed life because it was a 1965 movie and uh, it's okay. Like it's it's much more conventional even than than something like Youth of the Beast, uh, for like ninety percent of its running time, it's it's like a, a kind of a genial, uh, proletarian yakuza comedy, <laughs> uh, and then at the end it turns into like the like the uh, uh, you know the the fight sequence between Uma Thurman and and uh, Lucy Liu, right. Uh, yeah, it kind of turns into that, <laughs> right? Just at the end, um, he's got mile, miles and miles of style. That's for sure. Yeah, and he's still alive too. By the way, we should say that. Like, dude is like ninety, ninety-two years old. Yeah, but he, but he hasn't made a movie in like ten years. Oh, so now he's dead to you? Yeah, <laughs> that's how it works. Uh huh. Manuel de Oliveira was still making movies into his hundreds. So I mean. Come on, quit your slacking. Yeah, Suzuki, come Suzuki. on. <laughs> if Oliveira can do it, anybody can. No <laughs> excuses. Uh-huh. Uh, so, yeah, let, let's... And we can maybe talk a little bit more about him and, and kind of the weird things that he does and why they're awesome. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and it's, 
it, it occurs to me in watching Youth of the Beast that nobody really makes anything anything like this. Nobody was making movies like this in 1963, and nobody has really followed in his footsteps. Like there, there have been right. directors who have taken like bits and pieces of the the crazy shit that Suzuki was doing, uh, and kind of integrated it into their own thing. But there's nobody, there's no like Seijun Suzuki disciples out there, right? And I don't, I I think that's a good thing. I don't know that anyone possibly could. Well, yeah, it's like Captain Beefheart or something. It's like, you know, you can be influential. Mm-hmm. And you could be well respected, but you there there like there are a billion bands that can rip off the Velvet Underground and kind of get away with it, you know. But you can't rip off somebody that's like that unique because um, you know there's a special sort of magic to that that um, you can't just ape. So uh, yeah, and there's like uh, like the the Quentin Tarantino sequence uh, apes Seijun Suzuki. And I mean, I, I I like I like Kill Bill. I like that that scene, uh, but Suzuki does it better. Whereas right. somebody like John Woo, I think, kind of uh, understands Suzuki and kind of internalizes it and and takes the kind of weird uh, expressionism of Suzuki and bends it in his own unique direction. So I I think you can yeah see, they're very you, different. You can see that influence though. I think in Excuse me. In uh, something like the killer, uh, the killer reminds me of Seijun Suzuki. Only in retrospect, having seen Suzuki now and thinking about Youth of the Beast and looking forward to the killer, just the the. Uh, but there's a, I, I know what you're saying, but there's more. Yeah. It's it's like John Woo is more operatic. Like there's not. Well, John Woo is, is grafting onto like the the visual and, and kind of editing approaches to genre that Suzuki has. His own kind of melodramatic view of human emotions and relationships, which is which is very operatic and very uh, uh, Catholic, whereas Suzuki is not at all. Right. Uh, but you know, just I I think about like the colors in Youth of the Beast, and think about the reds and blues in in Choi Hark and, and John Woo films, and I I there's that seems to me a connection there, a, a kind of inspiration. Oh yeah, no, I could see that. Um, I, I I but I think the end products are are yeah uh, very different. Yeah, and in the same way, I think I think about Suzuki a lot with uh, in connection to Samuel Fuller, who was another very different kind of filmmaker but it seems to me that they share you know you know a certain craziness sensibility (laughs) like a a cavalier approach to to genre expectations in you know in in their willingness to be you know entirely unique and create something that nobody has ever seen before right yeah i yeah no i get that um i i i i wish i I'd like to see a Suzuki film that would hit me on the level of uh, some of my favorite Fuller stuff. Um, like Fuller stuff, there's like so much, so much to chew on, like thematically, um, narratively that I haven't found. Like to me, with Suzuki, it's a little more style over substance um, from the stuff that I've seen. And like I said, a lot of it's been a long time, so maybe I'm I, I it was just over my head at the time. But um, yeah, but I, yeah, but but I get what you're saying. I, I would agree with that because I think I think uh, you know, like Fuller and and John Woo 
they may not believe in genre, but they do believe in other things. Uh, and I don't know that that Suzuki does. I right. throw around nihilism a lot, but Suzuki, at least in these in these '60s gangster films, really seems to you know his his world doesn't have room for belief. Right, like it only gets people into trouble and only ends badly. Uh, whereas Fuller and and Wu are are more romantic than that. Yeah. Uh, definitely. Yeah. Uh, but, but dude, yeah, but, but the style goes a long way. Um, and, and it is, you know, uh, some of the most striking imagery you can, you know, imagine pops up, you know, in, in very weird random places. Um, and, and that is really cool. Yeah. And it's, it's not just, it's not just weird for, for its own sake. Like it's, it's really beautiful. Oh even, yeah. Even in like there's there's scenes of of horrible violence and and torture, but it's so pretty. And not in like a pretty like in a, like a Terrence Malick, you know, fields of wheat or like sunlight dappling kind of pretty, but just in like shocks of of blue and red and pink and just in camera in in Places that that make familiar kind of nineteen sixties gangster film spaces seem totally unfamiliar. Yeah, but it's I don't know. It's, it's hard to say. It's it, like a lot of like the self conscious camera placement and and stuff that you see in, in movies nowadays when cameras are are so cheap and small and easy to move around uh, really drives me nuts. Like the the cinematography in in, uh, in Breaking Bad, I think, is is really irritating. Mm. Uh, kind of like putting putting the camera like inside of a sink or something to look up at things, uh, right? Just over and over again for an entire uh, run of a TV <laughs> series uh, is obnoxious. But but somehow when Suzuki does it, it doesn't seem like a cliche. Like it doesn't seem showy. It seems it's showy for the sake of showy, but not. But there seems like there's more to it than that. I, I'm not exactly sure why. Right. I don't, I don't know what the magic formula is that make me, makes me like when he is showy and not like when other people are. Well, I think it's. I think you do get a little bit of a. I don't know if it's a pass, but you know, uh, when you're the first one to do it, like you. Um, I don't know. It, even even though you've seen the. Uh, you know, you've seen it aped so much since then. Seeing the original one uh, after the fact, I think, still has I don't know some sort of uh, kind of novel impact to it that um, you know putting a, a handheld thing in a in a fridge does you know not. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I mean, maybe it's maybe it's just something as like elusive as as taste. Like Suzuki just has good taste, and he knows when when to when, do it, when to do it, and when not to. And right. It just kind of affects you subconsciously. Right. Sure. I think I need more uh, uh, art theory background to understand it than I have. So. <laughs> All right. So that's the the Suzuki series. There's uh, I think nine more films coming up. I think we determined, uh, including the whole the whole Taisho trilogy. Uh, I am hoping to get out to see some of them. I don't know. How, what about you? Uh, probably not. Yeah. Uh you know gearing up so i uh, i'm leaving on vacation very soon and uh i'm working pretty much all the time before i go so uh 
getting out to do that is going to be a, kind of a struggle, which is a bummer because it would be fun. It would be fun to see these on 35 millimeter, you know, like like you said, seeing these colors popping. And um, I th- and I think these movies probably play pretty well with an audience. You know, I've yeah. o- only seen this stuff uh, on video at home. Uh, so I, it would be a nice thing to try and get out and do. And maybe who knows? Maybe it'll happen. But yeah. Uh, but there, there is other stuff going on in Seattle. Uh, what are you looking forward to? Well, you know, it's kind of funny uh, because it kind of it annoys me in a lot of respects. But I also I have to applaud it at the same time. Finally, six months after it came out, it's on video now, you know. But finally, the Hateful Eight 70 millimeter roadshow version is going to actually be playing at the screen in Seattle that it should have opened on uh, at Cinerama. Uh, oh, it's, only, it's only four months since it's been out. All right. Well, fine. But <laughs> but still, you know. They had it's... important stuff to play. They had to play Batman and Superman on 70. <laughs> yes. And they, had to, and they had to play Star Wars for like, you know, six weeks or whatever, yeah. which is fine. But, uh, They're a know. serious movie theater, Mike. Uh-huh. Anyway, The Hateful Eight, uh, actually the day that we are recording this, uh, is now coming back. It's playing in the 70mm Roadshow version, which is the version that I've, I've seen. Uh, and I, I really enjoyed the movie uh, a lot more the second time I saw it. Um, so, I, I once again, if I can get out of the house, <laughs> I would like to see this again on the biggest screen in Seattle. Um, because that's the way to do it instead of at the mall uh, with untrained projectionists um, <laughs> destroying the movie. But you know, so that's that. I, don't know. I, I saw it at the mall. It was, it's, it's a good movie. The mall is fine. I don't mind the Pacific place. I think the Cinerama is really overrated. Uh, I think the screen situation for this movie, like, you know, a movie that's shot in this, you know, wide of a, of an image shouldn't be played on a, you know, they, they had to, you know, create new masking to run this thing at the mall, um, which is kind of silly. Like if you have a screen that can accommodate it and is, you know, uh, like a, a full city block long, uh, you should play it on that instead. That's my two cents. But <laughs> I'm not saying Pacific Place is fine for stuff, I'm, I'm you know, but I'm just saying uh, if you're going to do a roadshow version of something and you're going to make a big hoopla about it, try and get the best possible presentation that you can get. Yeah, and if you're going to have, like, the best possible presentation, maybe program your theater correctly. Oh, yeah. Hey, trust me. We're in the same boat on that. I mean, it's it's Cinerama's failing there. Is is Absolutely. But uh, Uh, what is your pick? A theater that is actually well-programmed is the Northwest Film Forum. And coming up next week for a week is a uh, tribute to Chantal Ackerman, which is pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. they she are, may come up later in the program. Yeah, they're playing uh, uh, three of her films. Uh, let's see. Uh, Chantal Ackerman from here, which is actually a documentary about her, I think. And then they're playing her 1993 film uh, From the East and her 2016 film uh, Down There, which uh, you know is a posthumous film. Right. Uh, which is pretty neat. That is pretty cool. Yeah, and uh, I think Sif uh, is uh, kind of co-presenting that, and they're playing uh, her No Home movie, movie at Sif at the Film Center, and uh, there's also another documentary about her called I Don't Belong Anywhere. So, 
yeah. check it out. Chantal Ackerman, uh, we talked about her last fall. And uh, in conjunction with this series, we I actually considered doing the next episode of the Francis Farmer Show also on Chantal Ackerman. But I thought that would be a little overkill. Even though I, I really, I, I, I do want to watch more of her movies and, and talk about her more because she is a, a really fascinating and really great filmmaker. We could do a spinoff show called The Chantal Ackerman Show. The Chantal just... Ackerman Show. That yeah, was a, that why was not? An idea. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Hell yeah, let's yeah. do it. Yeah. <laughs> Barely have time to do this every other week. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, these are our movies that I would want to see. Yeah, good, good, good selection. Yeah. Uh, and like I said, that name will crop up later in the program. All right. So, so uh, one, <laughs> one genre that Chantal Ackerman, as far as I know, never ventured into is uh, the Yakuza film. <laughs> yeah, um, but you haven't seen her full filmography. That's, there might be that's one true. Sneak, yeah. There may be a Yakuza film in there. <laughs> Hopefully starring like Isabelle Huppert or something. Or Hell yeah. Juliette Binoche. Hell, or both of them. Oh my oh, god! Whoa. Oh my god! That would be amazing. <laughs> okay, uh, somebody, somebody get me Hollywood. <laughs> I don't think Hollywood's the right place, but yeah. yeah well, uh, that sounds amazing. Somebody yes, get, somebody so, get me Cinema Guild. There you go, Canal Plus. <laughs> um, yeah, so let's pick our essential. Uh, and like you said, I don't think you and I are you or I are uh, experts of this genre at all. No, uh, not so, not at all. And so it's, take this with a grain of salt. It's kind of weird because uh, every once in a while, I meet people who ask me my opinion on like Yakuza films or Japanese films, and I'm like, I really don't know because because I, I write and talk so much about about Chinese films, and they are they are very similar in a lot of ways, but I really know nothing about Japanese film post Ozu. Naruse Mizuguchi era, uh, other than like Kurosawa's later films, right? Uh, like the whole thing from like the mid '60s on is mostly a blank to me. So, yeah, I don't know what what is your essential Yakuza. Well, film? my my pick is it's not an amazing film by any means, but it is uh, more conventional than. Um... either of the films we we're talking about today and uh but but it was my first kind of experience of the magnificent presence of joe shishido uh including those cheeks those augmented cheeks of his uh, and it's a film i watched uh, actually for noir month a couple of years ago uh and it's got a great title it's called a cult is my passport and uh it's from 1967 uh takahashi nomura was the director of that one and uh it's it's pretty straightforward. It's uh, Joe Shishido is a is a hit, he's a hitman that's uh, hired, contracted out to uh, kill a mob boss, uh, which he does, and then he and his his buddy, who's also uh, quite a funny dude, uh, they have to go on the run uh, because they're they're being uh, you know tracked down. But it's a very hard boiled kind of film. It's it's short. It's like eighty minutes, um, and it's got a great. It, the reason I'm picking it is it's got a really, really great uh, gunfight at the end in kind of this, like, it's not like a wasteland, but this very vast, barren expanse. Uh, there's this this gun battle that is uh, just really, really cool. So that's my selection. A cult is my passport. 
Right on. That that is one I have not seen. But uh, when I was was asking people what Yakuza films I should watch, that was one of the ones that came up as as an essential one. So yeah, it was uh, it was part of an Eclipse set uh, that came out a few yeah, I, years I, ago. I actually own that set. I just oh, do you really? <laughs> yeah, I, I've watched one of the films, and that's it. The the Nakatsu in the '60s set. Yeah, yeah, I I have that. <laughs> I've only watched one of the movies and that wasn't the one. Uh, my my pick is uh, uh, something I watched last week uh, just for the occasion of this and it is all five parts of, uh, of Kinji Fukusaku's uh, Yakuza Papers, uh, Battles Without Honor and Humanity, uh, which is which is, uh, started in 1973 and over over two years, I think he he put out five movies that are all about a hundred minutes long, chronicling 20, 25 years or so of post-war Japanese yakuza life, centering in uh, this one prefecture around around uh, Hiroshima, and it's all it's all based on a true story. I'm based on a memoir of uh, this uh, yakuza boss who was in jail and kind of wrote his life story of how he got in with the yakuza and all of the various uh battles within the the criminal structure as they they grew out of like the chaos of the end of world war ii into uh becoming like a an increasingly uh uh dominant presence in in japanese life and then the eventual crackdown by by the police and the government and then the transformation of the organized crime into more uh more political entities and the kind of generational changes in the organized uh, uh, criminal groups as the years went on as like the the old guys like him who actually like believed in in honor and humanity were replaced by increasingly uh, capitalist and nihilistic youths uh, it's pretty great it's basically the godfather without any of the sentimentality that sounds pretty great. Yeah. How long is it total? Uh, each movie is about 100 minutes long. So altogether, it's like a little over six hours, I think. Mm. Uh, it's like an hour and a half, four, yeah, it's like six and a half hours or seven and a half hours, something like that. Basically, all five movies together are like half the length of out one. <laughs> uh, but they're they're very cool. And each movie is is kind of a distinct entity of their own like the the first one is uh uh is known as battles without honor and humanity and, it, and it's the best of the series uh and it it kind of just sets up the the whole world growing out of the end of world war ii and introduces you to so many characters and there's like a hundred characters at least over the run of the series and they all eventually run together and it becomes very confusing uh, but that's not really the point because there's like titles that come on screen whenever somebody's on there, so you kind of figure out who they are. Uh, but basically, it's all the same. Everyone is always posturing to increase their territory and increase their loot and increase their prestige in the organization. But they're all hampered, at least in the beginning, by these like blood oaths that they make with members of other criminal families. So. A, a guy's family will be going to war with another family, but one, but like his top general won't be able to partake in it because he's the blood brother of the top general of the other family. Right. So there's like the, this really like complicated like internested system of honor 
that kind of that guides their their life and and uh, makes it very difficult for anyone to actually get anything done uh, until in the later films people increasingly don't care about any of that and will just pursue you know greed for its own sake and and the villains in the film the worst characters are all the ones who don't actually believe in that code and that's really like the the differences i see it between this and like johnny toe's election movies i, I think I, I wrote a little bit about this on on letterboxd it's that uh in the election films there's like this this form this ritual form that all of the triads have to follow this this ideology that they all pay lip service to but nobody actually believes any of it they just go about pursuing their their own ruthless self-interest in in the yakuza papers the heroes of the story actually believe in that code and the villains do not mm. Uh, so there's, it's a very different perspective on criminal life between, between Kenji Fukusaku and, and Johnny Toe. And then, you, you know, when you mix in the Godfather films into that, it's a whole other approach to, to the organized crime mythology. Right. So, yeah, I, I, I really, really enjoyed these movies. And honestly, I haven't seen many other Yakuza films, but I can't imagine many being more essential. It sounds pretty, yeah, uh, you know, monolithic. Yeah, <laughs> but but they're but they're a lot of fun, and they're anchored by just like a brilliant lead performance. By uh, uh, Bunta Sugawara is the main character in in all five of the films, and he's he's such a, a sympathetic actor and and really charismatic, and and it's it's a lot of fun to root for him, and it's really kind of tragic when he gets sidelined towards the end, mm. but. Uh, but it's great, and and all throughout there's like there's time for little individual stories and romances and and tragedies. There's there's youth that get caught up. There's there's women who get left behind. There's uh, you know kids who always wanted to be a gangster and come to a tragic end. There's uh, this great villain who is just like this little round bald ball of of venality who is just hilarious and and horribly evil, and he's fantastic. It's 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 a great great series. <laughs> well, you sold me. Mm. <laughs> Good. Yeah, I'll get to it after I watch. Uh, you know, uh, Commune Paris, whatever the hell yeah, I'm supposed yeah. to watch. Yeah. Uh, they were they were just put out on on DVD, but in like a really nice set by by somebody like like Twilight Time or somebody like that. Uh, yeah, like a, a box set. I'm not sure if there if it's even still available, but uh, yeah, check it out. Cool, cool. Well, uh, we're gonna now transition into uh, a discussion of our final film for this week. Uh, we're, but first, we're gonna hear a little clip from it. Uh, this is from 1993's Sonatine.
All right, so our second film is uh, Sonatine from 1993, directed, written, edited, and starring Takashi Kitano, who is like a game show host in Japan. He's like a comedian. He hosted like, he had like six TV shows at one time or something ridiculous like that. He was like a comic figure. And then he started directing movies and they're all like really violent gangster films. <laughs> But uh, he's uh, in this film, he plays a Yakuza who gets sent to Okinawa in order to negotiate a truce between two warring uh, Yakuza families. He suspects it's a setup of some type, and he's not wrong. When he gets to Okinawa, uh, most of his men get killed, and he and the, uh, the ones who are left alive go and hide out on a beach where they spend the next half of the movie just kind of chilling on the beach. And then they go and uh, kill the guys who betrayed them. And that's pretty much it. Yep. It's pretty amazing. <laughs> I loved it. I thought it was really cool. <laughs> I did not know... Uh, I did not know what was going to... I knew nothing about this movie mm -hmm. going into it. You know? I mean, like, nothing. I was like, okay, it's a Yakuza film. Right, here we go. Um, and so the beginning of it's playing out. And it's pretty conventional in the beginning, you know, for the most part. You know, you get the... Um, like you said, something fishy's going on and all this stuff. But yeah, once they get to the the beach and they're just like hanging out getting drunk like you know getting in, you know playing like making like little cut out figurines to play this kind of like rock'em sock'em robot game uh i was like wait what what's going on here and then it goes on for like 45 50 minutes i'm like this is awesome yeah <laughs> this is like the coolest thing i've ever seen uh so that was cool yeah <laughs> it was pretty dope <laughs> yeah uh yeah so i i don't know i mean this it's a it's a really it's a really beautiful movie it's a really strange movie uh it is also uh really kind of nihilistic i think when it gets to its end oh and yeah i don't i don't know if we want to spoil the ending here I think it's actually on the poster for the movie. I think <laughs> uh, the poster uh -oh. is a fish is a fish getting speared. No, no, but there's another poster for the movie with a gun to someone's head. Uh, uh, yeah. So um, I don't know how much of a spoiler it's going to be, but uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, it, well, you know. it, it it all ends in violence and and everybody dies and 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 Takashi Kitano is uh, is like the best at like killing dudes and. You know, the the last five minutes or so of this movie are just kind of an amazing way to end a gangster film. Because he, he, gets, he gets an M16 and he goes to an office where all of like the heads of all of the families that have betrayed him are meeting. And he marches in there and we don't see what happens. We see outside the building as uh, one of his underlings is kind of, or one of his, his buddies is, is like watching and you see like the flashes of light from the machine gun. And then you get like cuts of, uh, of Yakuza bosses, like all lined up in a row as they get machine gunned, <laughs> but it's totally uh, abstract. It's not, it's not realistic at all. You don't see Katano like marching through the halls, like shooting bad guys. It's just, right. it's just like this uh, abstraction of, of ultraviolence. And to to the point that like his his uh, his friend, 
uh, runs away just because like what he suspects is going on inside there is so kind of horrifying or it's like more Yakuza than he can take. Uh, and then we don't, we don't see, we don't get the, the kind of final payoff where we see uh, Katano showdown with the, the ultimate big bad guy. Uh, we cut back to the beach where he's like driving along. He's going to meet like the girl who's waiting for him at the beach, but instead he does not. <laughs> I mean, if you're going to take him that far, you might as well spoil the goddamn movie. He shoots himself in the head. <laughs> yeah, he does. He pulls himself over on the side of this sand dune, pulls out a gun and blows his head off. Right. And, uh, with the the girl waiting for him just on the other side of the sand dune, and I am I really like that ending, and I'm I'm but I'm perplexed by it. So I, I'm curious what you think about that ending. Well, I loved it. I love that ending. I think the ending is fantastic. It, um, I think it's really uh, a perfect cap on this movie because the whole movie. You know, the movie starts, he's he's the quintessential guy who's too old for this shit, you know, um, and he, you know, one well, of the first scenes he's sitting, you know, he's, they're driving through, you know, Tokyo or whatever. And he says to his partner, he's like, I'm thinking of retiring or whatever. And, uh, you know, he's been in this game, you know, for, you know, several decades or whatever. Um, his entire and, life, basically. His entire life. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and as the movie goes on and we get, you know... First, we, we see the, the world that he's, you know, a part of, which involves him, you know, <laughs> drowning a guy, like, like rapid, uh, you know, wrapping a guy up in rope and suspending him from like a crane and then dunking him into like a lagoon uh, and killing him. Uh, so just kind of heartless stuff. But then when he gets to the beach, you know, he, he does these things that are kind of fun and lighthearted, but he also shows that he's also just unhinged and you know i think i think it i think if you go back and see the movie after knowing what will happen to him at the end i think he's like leading to that already because he you know he plays a game of russian roulette um on yeah, the beach he, he he clearly has no he doesn't really care whether he lives or dies yeah like he he is so far beyond caring about mortality either other other people's or his own and even the moments of like joy that he gets, like um, there's a there's a scene where it, he he took the the girl out on like a boat and the, and they're coming back and it starts raining and um, they duck under a tree or whatever and she takes her top off mm -hmm. and uh, and it's a moment of joy for him, you know, uh, naked woman right in front of him, mm -hmm. um, and he even has he says like a little joke like who knew indecent exposure would be so much fun or something like that. But there's also but the, but throughout even those moments there's this weary kind of resignation to him too. You know, like he's play acting the uh, the happiness uh, to a degree. So I feel like the ending is. You know, he he suspected being set up by these people. He was right. He wanted to get out of this life. He rectified the situation, and then he realized like there's nothing else for him in this life. Like I think the I you know the woman is you know two decades younger than him. It's not like they would have some sort of stable relationship. I think he realized that his life, whether he likes it or not, is t is tied to this yakuza lifestyle. 
Yeah, and I'm 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 kind of thinking along the same lines, and that's and and with what I think is really beautiful around around about that ending is like if he if he goes over the dune and and meets the girl, then the, like they have and they have a life together. It's probably not going to be as good as the feeling of knowing that the girl is just on the other side of the dune waiting for you. Right. And he kills himself and he's in that moment where he knows that the girl is waiting for him forever. Right. What, what, but one more could you want? Exactly. Like <laughs> it, it can't get any better than knowing that like happiness is, is just right there. Right. Because if you actually like get the happiness, it'll never be as good as that moment of anticipation. Right. Which is really lovely. And it's not something you expect to see in a gangster film. Well, you don't expect to see any of this in a gangster film. Well, like I said, the first third of it you expect to see. It it it, it really, you know, it, like I said, it, it it I don't want to say it's paint by numbers, but you know, like you see but, the but, ruthlessness, you know, but that's all a setup to yeah, get you to the But even that is so odd. It's so it's so passionless and so and so robotic. Like the the scene where they're where they're dunking the guy into the water with the crane. And and they've got like this this guy who refused to pay them protection money. They got him tied up to a crane, and they lower him into into the ocean. Uh, and then they pull him up. And they're like, they want to see how long he can hold his breath. And I was like, can you do it two minutes? Okay, so they put him down there, and they wait two minutes, and then they pull him up, and he and he's fine. He's like, well, let's try three minutes. And they get him down there, and they're all just kind of staring off into space with no interest at all it's like it's not even like a scientific interest it's just it's not even out of boredom it's just a thing that they're doing and they pull him up and they're like oh he's dead clean it up (laughs) and it's it's so it's so unnerving the the approach to to violence that that these men have and so and contrasted with how goofy they are when they get to the beach even though right. their their games their games are all violent, you know Russian roulette or or the the sumo uh, wrestling game, uh, it's they're still about violence, but it's so much different in tone. Right, and well, and I think you also a really smart move is to um, he's two of the characters that are on this beach with him are are two younger guys that are kind of you know, connected at the hip. Uh, mm-hmm. Their relationship is really uh, kind yeah. of beautiful. Like, yeah, they're like, buddies. They become friends. It's, yeah, it's they, really they didn't like each other in the beginning. You know, one of them, you know, keeps trying to like, you know, ingratiate himself with the other one and he doesn't want it. Um, and so you you get those guys that have like a, a sense of life and, and uh, you know, that they're enjoying themselves, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and, and, then, and there's the older guy who loves to to dance and sing. And... <laughs> yeah, that guy's crazy. It, that's the other thing is that this movie, and like you said, Katano, you know, is a comedian. Like he comes up through comedy, um, which you wouldn't tell by the one, you know, uh, the the character he portrays here, or you know, kind of the the finale of this. But uh, but the, there is a lot of. Uh, comedy that hits well in this movie which is really the character interactions and the playfulness that goes on amongst these people but i think it was really wise to have those two young guys as a contrast um because they're not and and this is another reason why one of those two is the guy that runs away from the shooting at the end is mm-hmm. he's not he's not he's not, he's not lost dis- yet he's not dispassionate yeah exactly he's he's 
he still has a foot in some sort of, you know, compassionate world. Yeah. Which is, you know, triggered by the fact that his buddy gets shot in the head. But yeah. <laughs> I, I also I love the the fifth guy on the beach who who uh, everyone's like, so you're you're wearing that ugly shirt again, huh? Yeah, <laughs> you really like that ugly shirt, don't you? <laughs> yeah, they kind of raided a Tommy Bahama before they went to the the, the beach. There, everybody's wearing uh, you know these Bermuda Bermuda shirts or whatever. Um, yeah. And yeah, so it's fantastic. It's 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 a very I can't think of a like we're talking about Suzuki and you you know it's like um, you know so original and like I, you know there's not really anybody that does it like that but. This movie to me is so much more uh, unique. Like I like I don't even I didn't even know a movie like this could like really like existed. You know what I mean? Like it goes off into such weird but like interesting and genuine kind of places um, that I just was rolling with it. Yeah, I mean i i can I can see a little uh, I can see a little Johnny Toe in it. And that Johnny Toe has a few movies that that begin as typical genre films and then become diverted by kind of a spirit of play, but there's none of the 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 kind of uh, brutal kind of fatalism at the end of this, or the the lack of of emotion is is mostly alien to Johnny Toe. Yeah. Um, I can also see like the the influence of of Seijin Suzuki, just kind of the the willingness to to tear up the rules of the genre and create something something personal out of out of the raw material of 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 generic story elements. Um, but but yeah, I, I don't, I yeah, I, I can't really imagine another film quite like this. Uh, have you seen any other Takashi Kitano? I have not. Uh, I mean, I've seen him as an actor okay. in, in stuff. Uh, but I, I was looking at the filmography of, as a director, and I, I haven't. Um, this I got from Scarecrow in a two-disc set with his uh, Zatoichi, um, which okay. I, you know, I haven't seen. I, I, you know, I maybe I might try and uh, I, catch up with that. I saw his uh, uh, fireworks. I think it's from 1998. Um, uh, Hanabi is uh, 1997. Uh, I saw that in like 1998, and uh, it really, uh, really, really impressed me at the time. Uh, but it's not a movie I remember very well at all. Uh, it's it's definitely something I need to to rewatch. And then uh, just this last week, I watched his first film as a director, *Violent Cop*, which I I really enjoyed. It's it's mm. a lot of fun. It's it's very different. It's much. It's more kind of a traditional movie. He plays a violent cop. Uh-huh. Uh, <laughs> you don't and, say. Yeah, and base and basically, just long stretches of the film are just him walking down the street with like this like groovy electronic score going on and it's just he's he's got a fantastic walk it's like one of the all-time great cinema walks uh and then he like finds somebody that he has a problem with and he just slaps him until the guy does what he wants him to uh and then it all ends in like an orgy of nihilistic violence and despair <laughs> uh which is pretty great that's awesome <laughs> yeah that, that movie was a lot of fun but but uh that w- that movie was a lot of fun. I think I think Sonatine is is really great. 
Yeah, I, I, ne- this is one I will definitely rewatch um, later on down the line, um, because, like I said, I had zero, I had no idea what I was getting into, and now I'm like, oh my god, I want more of that, <laughs> you know. Yeah. And I want to give a, a quick shout out um, to uh, one of my favorite uh, composers, Joe Hisashi, mm-hmm. uh, actually did the music for this. Um, and most people will know his work from the Studio Ghibli stuff, um, which is a little more, um, the, his, his stuff for that tends to be, I don't know, th- in, in this movie, it's very synthy. Um, it feels like late 80s, early 90s. It really feels like of, of its era. But um, he, he comes up with these, you know, these, these, keyboard patterns and stuff that play for long stretches of this movie, like uninterrupted. Um, and it gives this kind of, it since always have this weird kind of playful yet kind of maudlin sound mm-hmm. to them sometimes. And, and which obviously works for, for this movie. So Joe Hisashi's my boy and I was glad to see uh, his credit on this movie. Yeah. And, and just to kind of tie up the show, uh, uh, the the acting performance where I first saw Takashi Kitano, well, not first saw him because I saw Fireworks first, but uh, where you most recognize him is in uh, Battle Royale, which right. is uh, directed by Kenji Fukusaku, who uh, was the original director of Violent Cop, who uh, uh, t- uh, Takashi Kitano took the job when he when he quit the film, and uh, uh, Kenji Fukusaku, of course, directed Yakuza Papers. Boom. So there we go. Boom. <laughs> Mic drop. It's a small world. <laughs> um, yes. Yeah. yeah, I think Battle Royale was the first film I saw um, with him in it as well. Yeah. So so anyway, yeah, check out Sonatine. It's uh, it's super cool. Yeah. Even though uh, we spoiled the ending, it's it won't. It doesn't it matter. Does, it doesn't spoil the ending. It, yeah, it really doesn't. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so we're going to take another quick break um, and, you know, join us on the other end <laughs> on the other, the side. other side yeah of the dune That's we'll be right. waiting <laughs> That was also more of your music. What was that one called? That one was called Paper Plates. Yeah. Was that because <laughs> you were staring at a paper plate? You know, it was probably I ate the cupcake and then looked uh, down and then there was yeah, a paper yeah. plate beneath the cupcake. Nice. <laughs> yep. Nice. Yep. The, the, you know, the magician has pulled back the curtain. <laughs> uh, yeah. So next time on the show, I'm not going to be here. Uh, right. And I'm sure... Everybody's rejoicing. Mm. Um, I'm sure there's dancing in the streets, uh, I'm sure, at at this announcement. Uh, Our good friend Melissa, who is, uh, you know, she's smarter than me. She's wittier than me. She's cooler than me. um, She's pretty much everything more than me will be filling in for me. Very true. I know, right? Yeah. 
while I'm in Minnesota, I'm going to be in the Midwest. I think I said that at the end of the last show. I know I said it at the end of the last show. Yep. Uh, so all, I'll be all, out of town. We all know there is no internet in the Midwest. Well, let me let me explain. <laughs> they also don't have movies there. They do because I'm about to tell you my rep pick. But mm. uh, no, when we're recording the show, when we normally record the show, we'll be there's a lot of family that I'm going to be involved with. And mm. let me tell you right now, I'm already dreading this trip because like <laughs> I just the emails back and forth, like trying to plan stuff is just like driving me insane. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I mean, it's, I had to finally send out a blanket email that said, okay, here's what's happening. I'm here this day to this day. I'm, you know, the only thing I have planned is I'm going to a Minnesota twins game. That's all. You know, and it's like, well, is you know, is so and so invited? And I'm like, I don't care. Everybody can do whatever they want. You know, I don't care. If there's a lot of drama, it's just too much. Anyway, hopefully none of them listen to this show. Mm-hmm. Um, our good friend Melissa will be filling in for me. Yeah, and uh, I'm I'm really looking forward to that. Um, I like passing the baton to her. I, I think she should do a fine job. She won't have a lot of ums. She won't punctuate her speech with, you know, digressions about family. You know, unlike be... unlike you and I, she can speak in proper English. Right. She has degrees in that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, you two are going to talk about two movies. What the hell are you going to talk about? Uh, we had a hard time trying to come up with something to talk about. So what we ended up doing is uh, 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 Soy Chang's SPL2, the uh, kung fu film with Tony Jaa and Louis Gu and Wu Jing is coming out in the middle of May. And uh, so we're going to talk about that. Even though it's like a couple weeks before it opens, we're just going to talk about it anyway. And we're going to, uh, along with that, talk about uh, A Brighter Summer Day, the Edward Yang film, which finally has been released by Criterion after like five years of rumors. It is actually a physical, tangible thing that is in my house. So we're going to (laughs) watch those two movies and they might have something in common not really but <laughs> they should be pretty cool and it should be fun to talk about them well that's great i'll actually listen to the show for once oh, i wouldn't recommend that <laughs> um yeah that's cool well uh unfortunately my midwest trip uh, is is a little tardy for this awesome awesome uh rep pick that i got here last week i talked about the uh Heights Theater in uh, in Minneapolis, which is showing uh, Robert Mitchum stuff, but they're doing that in collaboration with uh, this small theater called the Trilon. Uh, it's called a micro cinema. I think, it, from what I gather, it seems kind of like a Grand Illusion esque sort of place, a very small little place um, that does a lot of adventurous things. Uh, and starting today and running through this weekend, so the fifteenth, sixteenth, and seventeenth, they are showing Chantal Ackerman's Jean Dielman. Uh, you know, one show a day, all three and a half hours of it. Uh, and that movie's amazing. One of my favorite movies of all time. And I'm going to miss it because my flight's not for another 10 days. But so it goes. But if you're in Minneapolis and you want to go, you know, support a nonprofit micro cinema, uh, you should totally go see that. Right on. Yeah, that is, of course, a great movie. Uh, playing at the Museum of Modern Art in New York 
uh, starting May 6th and running for a month is a retrospective of the films of Jean-Marie Straub and Danielle Ouellet, uh, uh, which looks really awesome. Uh, I talked about them a little bit on our 1965 episode. I watched their, uh, what was it called? Uh, Not Reconciled, which I thought was really good, but I did not totally get. And, uh, it was the first of their films that I've seen, and I really am anxious to see more because I want to figure out what these people are all about because they're doing stuff that seems really interesting. Uh, they're playing Not Reconciled on May 6th along with the Chronicle of Anna Magdalena Bach. Uh, they're, they've got their Antigone film. They've got... Uh, uh, Moses and Aaron, which I read about like... He, 20 years ago and sounded really cool. It's like a adaptation of the, the Schoenberg opera. Uh, yeah, it's got tons of stuff, class relations, history lessons. Uh, it's got a whole bunch of movies that I really wish I could go and see, but I can't because I don't live in New York. No, you do not. No, <laughs> but if I did, I would go see these. Not all of them because that's insane, but right. a lot of them I would. All right. Well, to find out more about us, you can go to seattlescreenscene.com. Uh, we also have a Twitter account uh, at Seattle Screen and an email account, seattlescreen at gmail.com. Uh, yeah, and like I said, Melissa will be taking my place next week. Good luck to you, Melissa. Uh, you're the only person that listens this far into the show, I'm sure. Um, and, but yeah, Sean, I'll, I'll, I'll talk to you next month. Yeah, uh, when you when you get back, it'll be time for SIF. Oh boy! The two months of SIF are about to begin. <laughs> That's right. I, I got to start training. Yeah. Uh, all right. Can't wait. Yeah. Here is. Until more, next time. Yeah. Here is more of Mike's music that might have a name. <laughs>